Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tony Crescenzi, hoping we don't talk to him about Tesla. Pimco's market strategist, and he joins us around the hey, table. Don't, like don't worry, Tony, we're That's not going to do it. Do you want to talk about? I like do you want to talk about tweeting and driving or Ambien? Well, I'm very careful, but I'm a, I'm a, I drive with two feet, and which I tell you not to do. But I've not had an accident, knock wood, in 30 years. Uh, I, I'm a defensive driver. You're a defensive driver. What is yes. it, what is a defensive driver? Meaning my foot driver? being on the brake at all times means I'm. I think I'll be safe <laughs> against all dangers. <laughs> Tony, it's great to have you with us. Let's talk about the market, shall we? Where's the conviction call live for you right now? The conviction is to go up in quality, up in cash, and up in the the, the uh, capital structure. Um, it is late cycle, uh, meaning it, the U.S. expansion is entering its 10th year. Once next June arrives, we'll have seen the longest uh, U.S. peacetime expansion ever. And typically, in a case like this, they become uh, an increase. There's an increase in risk of recession. And in a recession, of course, an equity beta, credit beta, in other words, some correlation in your portfolio to those markets um, becomes a little more, a little riskier. And so one would want to be, uh, to fortify his or her or its portfolio. So it's interesting. I was reading through uh, your asset allocation report put out by PIMCO. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you about gold or equities, but I am interested in finding out about the conviction call on non-agency mortgage-backed securities. Right. This is basically uh, the mortgage debt that is not backed by Fannie and Freddie Mae. Uh, and I'm just for, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how you can have conviction in that if we are at a late cycle, and that's less liquid debt. Well, if you think about it, um, these loans, of course, many of them, most, almost all of them, were created before the crisis over 10 years ago. So they're seasoned, if you will. Uh, the equity values of these homes have gone up, and, and uh, the, the amounts of loans, the amount of the loans outstanding have gone down. The, in other words, the loan-to-value ratios have gone down. And add another factor, technical factor, the market shrinking. It's a half trillion. It used to be two trillion. So there's some scarcity element there, too. But the, the credit side story looks pretty good right now. Can we just question the premise of this conversation currently, that we're late cycle? And I don't mean this question to be flippant right. at all. I just want to understand how you identify where we are in the cycle. Well, one sh- could look at the calendar and say it's late cycle because we are entering, entering the 10th year of an economic expansion, and that's only happened once since World War II. But perhaps we should be thinking about it in a different way and thinking about the, the magnitude of increase in GDP. One could say we're mid-cycle based on that because economic growth has been in the low twos, yeah. and historically it's been about three. So based on that gauge in terms of where we should be having seen an economic expansion for 10 years versus where we are, GDP at $20 trillion, perhaps it should be $22 trillion, and there is a ways to go. And finally, uh, looking at the inflation story, which has been benign, wage story, perhaps there is more room to run. So what is the return expectation that you're trying to set for clients with a fixed income portfolio in the years ahead? Well, it 
it depends, of course, and at PIMCO it absolutely depends because we run different types of strategies. But one popular strategy is one to be in core investments, the Barclays, the Bloomberg Barclays aggregate. Um, that's yielding today about 3.3%. Uh, historically, managers such as PIMCO have been able to gain alpha or returns above the stated yield of up to 100 basis points. So one could argue then that for core investments in a fixed income portfolio, returns on a going forward basis since starting yield is the most important determinant of future returns, potentially in the low fours, which is not bad, or even mid fours, not bad for a diversifier. Uh, and of course, the, the, where your returns are in other parts of the fixed income market depend uh, on the volatility and the type yeah. of strategy you choose. Tony, has income become a much more important component of total return? It has, um, because right now, it's not... The game is not as easy it was as it was post-crisis, believe it or not. Even though it was challenging back then, it was easy in a sense that if you simply had a beta or a connection to credit and equities, yeah. you won. Today, one has to be thinking more about relative value. And if, in fact, we could develop a portfolio, create one from the bottoms up, simply looking at the securities and saying, we like this security, rather than the top down, having a beta to equities and credit, we would. So we're looking for securities, like Lisa mentioned, like non-agencies or bank capital securities or short-dated corporate bonds. You know, it's interesting. There's sort of a tension right now because on one hand, uh, people are moving into less liquid securities that offer that income that John was talking about. On the other hand, a lot of people are plowing into private equity funds and venture capital. And I'm just wondering, at what point have we reached direct lending peak or, you know, too much of this that is destined for failure? Well, yesterday I was in Atlanta uh, and I was at an alt alternative investments forum and uh, some very big players in the game were talking about that idea and they all seem to be themselves cautious and so uh, the, the, the yellow flag's already gone up for, for the big players in the sphere. So it's not likely to get overly frothy. Uh, more than likely. And uh, there is still vigor in the global economy, probably grow in the low sixes uh, nominally, meaning infl real growth of three and a half and inflation of two and a half. Yeah. Gives you six. Uh, and that's that's good for uh, real assets, which the PE uh, climate and venture capital climate uh, depends upon, the environment. Tony, just to wrap things up, it's really interesting to me and I'm sure to our listeners, when we're talking about the confidence and the optimism in the American economy right now, just how defensive fixed income managers are becoming. Um, Dan Iverson, CIO of your shop, interestingly turning cautious and defensive in the last couple of weeks. And, and Tony, I'm trying to reconcile that with the, with the US economy that we see in front of our eyes right now. Well, because of, we're thinking about the late cycle dynamics, and uh, we did put it to some extent on, uh, uh, in, in the context of the calendar, meaning we're getting late in the expansion and typically there is a recession somewhere on the horizon and one has to be fortifying a portfolio. In fact, the the single best investment that you make in your portfolio in the next year or so might be the one you don't currently have. In other words, implicitly what I just said is that there could be a moment of volatility, whether it be because markets think the Fed will go beyond what it's priced for or whether markets think that there's a recession somewhere on the horizon. There'll be enough movement in markets that you'll put something in a portfolio that that individually will will perform very well but how do you how are you able to do that by today preparing by raising credit quality raising cash levels and going higher in the capital structure and so we we base it on uh, what's the probabilities and that's what a manager has to go on and the probability is that over a three year horizon or so 
there's chances of recession are a little higher than they were a few years ago. Tony, it's great to have you with us. Thanks, John. Thank Thanks, you. Lisa. Tony Crescenti, so PIMCO's very own, with some insight into markets, Lisa. Some fascinating stuff. Yeah. And, and certainly compared to the equity guys, whenever I speak to anyone in fixed income, they are starting to turn a little bit more cautious and a little bit more defensive. Yeah, you know, here's the, here's the tension right now, though. You are entering late cycle uh, investing by almost all accounts. When do you know we're in end cycle? And I don't how do you know? know? And, and could late cycle go on for the next, I don't know, three years? Potentially. We haven't seen the inversion of the yield curve, and typically you, got you like have some time months. after that, 18 months, yeah. perhaps even two years. Yeah, no, but this is like the tension that I think is emerging. Yeah, I, I think, think it's question. interesting too. And we've run out of time with Tony, but I would love to have asked him about whether everyone is doing the same thing, um, piling into the front end of the Treasury curve and waiting for the downturn that might not be coming anytime soon. So the tweet coming from the President of the United States saying the following. In speaking with some of the world's top business leaders, I asked what is it that would make businesses, jobs, even better in the United States? Quote, stop quarterly reporting and go to a six-month system, said one. That would allow greater flexibility and save money. I've asked the SEC to study. Bloomberg's markets correspondent, Remain Bostic, running into the studio to talk to us about it. Remain your thoughts. Uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, look, I mean, a lot of CEOs have been pounding the table on this for a while. Um, we know that, uh, you know, people like Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon have been pretty vocal about the idea of sort of at least scaling back the uh, the frequency of f- providing quarterly guidance. Now, Trump's tweet obviously s- seems to refer specifically to quarterly reporting as a whole. Um, you know, there, he might be conf- conflating the two things. There is a compelling argument, though, that uh, the forward guidance that companies uh, feel compelled to give every quarter uh, might not really reflect uh, the true long-term strategy of the yeah. company, and it becomes a little bit of a distraction. Although I have to wonder now, at a time of near peak profitability, of, of, of profitability that, are, that really is off the charts, why companies are complaining about this to President Trump is one of their top concerns. I mean, what could it be about that? Well, uh, well, look, I mean, anytime we get to the top of these business cycles, we've seen this over and over again, companies always try to push back and reporting requirements and other things that they feel uh, makes their lives a little bit more onerous because right now they're in the catbird seat. They could point to yep. their job creation. They could point to the court record quarterly profits and they can say, you know, look, cut us a little bit of slack here and we can make this economy grow even more. Do these individuals need more control. It's my basic question off the back of this. Both Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett, who wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed earlier this year, they are both CEO and chairman of their respective companies. That could be a problem for many, many people. Elsewhere, there's a huge problem in the world of technology companies. More and more companies listing dual-class shares that give public shareholders pretty much no voting rights whatsoever. Mark Zuckerberg, this earlier this year, is a fantastic example, perhaps, a leader with too much control. Yeah, and I mean, look, I mean, we've talked a lot about this idea that, that shareholder rights uh, have really sort of been eroded over the past few years. And I mean, you were talking about Elon Musk earlier this morning. And just, I mean, you think that this isn't just about Elon Musk. This is about board independence and oversight. And so all of the things that investors depend on to sort of assess the health of a company, a lot of that is baked into this quarterly reporting cycle. It doesn't mean it doesn't, it has, it doesn't have its flaws, yeah. but there are so many investors across the board that depend on this and analysts that cover this that depend on this. And to roll that back, you have to wonder, 
What's going to replace that? We're just yeah. going to be in the dark for six months? Yeah. Robin, is there a precedent for this from a place that has rolled it back? Well, you've seen this in Europe and, and particularly in the UK, uh, which has sort of gone back and forth on this. And keep in mind, you know, quite a few companies over there only report on a semi-annual basis, as well as in Asia. But I would also argue, though, too, that the companies over there tend to be a little bit different. I mean, you're talking about much more value-oriented companies that are much more slower-growth industries. But when you're talking about a, a, a market like the U.S., where you have so many hyper-growth companies, yeah. and to be kept in the dark for five or six months about what's going on there, I, I, I think that would be – it would just create a, 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 an era of so wild speculation among investors. It would probably create more volatility. I'm not sure what would be healthy – uh, here for the market. The, the problem at the epicenter of all of this is short-termism. Short-termism is a problem. That's mm -hmm. something we can all sit around this table and agree on. Where I kind of differ with the people that are kind of pushing this view to end quarterly earnings guidance is that the CEOs and chairmen of these companies have contributed to short-termism. Mm -hmm. They have given investors little much else to focus on with the exception of quarterly earnings guidance because their contribution to how these companies are ran is being ripped away from them mm -hmm. over the last several years. Isn't that the problem? Yeah, and I mean, let's talk about uh, the guidance too because, you know, I was looking at this this past earnings season and the thing is not a lot of companies actually do this. I mean, not the majority of them. I mean, you're probably talking about less than 40% of the companies in the S&P 500 actually provide a regular quarterly earnings forward guidance. Yeah. So a lot of them can get away with just saying, here are our numbers, and then giving some sort of broader thematic about, about where they're going. And, and investors seem to be happy with that. But again, if you don't uh, get this sort of airing of the laundry every quarter, I, I, it's going to open the door to a lot more speculation about, amongst market participants. Yeah. And I just don't see how that can happen. And I agree with you, Romain. We should be drawing a line between <laughs> providing quarterly earnings guidance and providing mm -hmm. quarterly earnings. And that doesn't seem to be happening this morning at all. Sure. Romain Bostick, great to catch up with you this morning. Um, Bloomberg's very own and one of our finest dropping by the studio to get us up to speed on an important story this morning, Lisa. Yeah, indeed. A really important story. We will follow it as it evolves. Another important story is taking a look back at what's been happening in Turkey. With the turmoil continuing today, the lira taking another leg lower versus the dollar. The key question here is how much is this an idiosyncratic issue and how much does this represent some serious pain that is uh, yet to be felt in the emerging markets? complex. There's a question, especially as we talk about how the U.S. deficit is continuing to deepen and will probably expand by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Where are the bond vigilantes? Here to talk with us about that is the person who coined the phrase himself, bond vigilantes back in the 1980s, Dr. Ed Yardeni, president of Yardeni Research, who cut his teeth at a variety of places, including the Federal Reserve uh, and Prudential Securities and Deutsche Bank. Where are they? Why are we not seeing yields go higher in U.S. debt <laughs> markets, given how much debt yeah. the U.S. is selling? Yeah, these days, if you want to find bond vigilantes, you probably have to go to Turkey or Italy to, to, to see how the financial markets are responding to uh, uh, policy mistakes. But uh, here in the United States, you're absolutely right. Uh, since the tax cuts at the end of last year and the spending increases at the beginning of this year, the outlook is for deficits to be a trillion dollars a year over the next 10 years on average. So that's, that's huge numbers. 
And the bond market just doesn't seem to care. And I think um, the, the vigilantes are not really the only players in the bond market. Um, there's also central banks, by the way, that for the past 10 years have been muscling into their territory. And you've got the ECB and the BOJ with interest rates slightly negative and bond yields over there close to zero. Do we Can we glean any lesson from what we're seeing in Italy as far as when the central bank backstop no longer works? Well, sure. I mean, it's... It, it's conceivable that um, you know the central bankers uh, don't have uh, all the magic in the world. They've certainly uh, uh, thrown a lot of fairy dust at uh, the global economy for ten years, and it actually seems to, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, work work pretty well. You know, here we are with out of global recession, the economy is still growing. Um, I mean, at some point, the deficits may matter, but I'm uh, I'm very empirical about these things. I'll, when I when I start to see the bond vigilantes kind of rise up and the protest. The outlook for debt, uh, I'll be concerned. I, I think the bond vigilantes are first and foremost focused on inflation. So uh, I've I found historically, uh, and I've been doing this for 40 years, the bond market just doesn't seem to be explainable that much by supply-demand fundamentals. So deficits just don't seem to matter until they matter, and they typically matter when one way or another, they're, they're contributing to an inflation problem. So uh, the, the concept of a bond vigilante was brilliant, and so we should apply it across yeah. a variety of different assets. Um, this morning, President Trump tweeted that the SEC should study allowing companies to report earnings on a half-year basis right. rather than a quarterly basis. And I'm wondering, are we going to see Dow vigilantes and S&P vigilantes kind of spring up in response to that and say, no, no way, we want the transparency? Well, you know, I, I don't think you're going to see the stock market sell off on this proposal. And even if the SEC said, OK, you only have to report every six months, I don't think the stock market would sell off. I, I think investors, and particularly large institutional ones, said, you know, it, it's nice that the regulators are saying you only have to do six months, but we really want it quarterly. We kind of got used to it. We expect it. Uh, and um, industry analysts are going to be pushing for continuation of quarterly estimates. Wait, hold on a second. You think that companies are going to say, you know what, we're fine with quarterly earnings? I think they are. Yeah. So, I they, mean, so then why are they, there big they, they, They're going to say they're fine because the investors that they rely on are saying, we need we need those numbers. We want those numbers. We expect those numbers. We want a, a quarterly call, and we want that to continue. Is it significant that executives who are having dinner with President Trump are griping about this right now? Well, you know... Uh, a lot of people have had dinner with uh, President Trump, and no, I mean, had a lot of conversations that you know, sometimes led led to nothing more than dessert. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, I think that there is a question though. If this is their, on their wish list right now, does it say we're kind of at a peak I'm, in the uh, yeah. power dynamic? You, you between... caught me flat-footed on this one. I mean, I I, <laughs> I, I I just heard this news like like two minutes ago right. as, as you did. So now I'm saying I'm 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 flabbergasted. I mean, partly because I've got a personal bias. I mean, I need these numbers to, <laughs> to keep me busy. You know, if I have to wait six months, the good news is I think analysts would continue to do what they do, which is give us their expectations, uh, whether they get quarterly updates or not. And uh, I'll be tracking those uh, willy-nilly, as will investors. So let's talk about what you do, which is uh, comb through the numbers and try to glean uh, broader right. trends in some kind of direction. I'm trying to figure out, you know, people are worried about peak profitability as we watch profit margins rise yeah. to a record. Do you get any sense that we are at that point, or do right. you think that this cycle has a lot more room to run than people Yeah, well, this, 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 is an, this has been sort of a, an issue that's been bandied about recently. You know, there's a lot of sometimes uh, 
uh, semantic uh, inaccuracies here. What, what does that mean exactly? And I, I think that what's what what's meant is what what makes sense is that the year-over-year percent change in earnings uh, are peaking this year. And uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, with a tax cut as large as we had at the end of last year, we're going to get earnings of about 20% on a year-over-year basis. That's not going to continue. They're going to settle down to the trend growth, assuming no recession. Um, and that's be about five to seven percent. So, in terms of the growth rate, yeah, the growth rate is peaked. I mean, it's not going to do double digits again next couple of years. Uh, but beyond that, there's no reason why the market can't continue to rise along with earnings. And if market after this year goes up five to seven percent, I don't have a problem with that. Well, one one variable here is wages, right? Because yeah. we really haven't seen wages increase. And when I talk to a number of equity analysts, they say when we start seeing companies actually have to pay up to hire quality people, then that's going to right. cut into profit margins, reduce their attractiveness. Right. But if they don't start yeah. paying people yeah. more, how long can the consumers well, keep spending? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you raise another very important question on this profitability issue, peak profitability. I mean, so we could talk about the year-over-year growth rate in, in earnings, and it's peaking this year, but it'll still grow next year again assuming as I do there'll be no recession. Uh, but you also uh, raise the issue of the profit margin. And the profit margin, which bears have been saying has got to revert to the mean uh, ever since the bull market started almost, um, uh, that, that margin actually hit an all-time record high of 11% for the S&P 500 in the fourth quarter before the tax cut. And then the tax cut hits and we're at 12%. So I, I think there's actually some room for the margin to give give some back uh, to, to fund maybe some wage increases, some more capital spending. But you know what? I mean, we've been waiting for Godot here for a long time in the labor market. Wage inflation just remains extremely uh, quiescent. And I think it's because ever since the trauma of 2008, cor corporations have been focused on the profit margin. So given the fact that you seem really positive on markets, and given the fact that we talk with a lot of people who are starting to get cautious, I mean, think about PIMCO or right. think about a lot of the big asset managers, what's your best contrarian call here? Well, um, I, I, I guess uh, that the U.S. stock market will continue to outperform on a relative basis uh, all other stock markets around the world, major, major stock markets, um, and uh, will do so even on an absolute basis. So, I mean, I've got... 3,100 on the S&P 500 by the uh, end of the year. Uh, I've been using that number since the beginning of the year. I felt like a genius in, in January and then felt, felt like a complete idiot what I'm going to do with myself uh, when, when the market took a dive there in, in early February. But now I'm feeling semi-intelligent again. again. And, <laughs> now I'm uh, feeling like a genius again. Not a genius. I don't want to go that far. You know, you always have to be somewhat humble in this business. But, um, you know, 3,100 by, by year end or sooner, there I've been very positive. Uh, optimistic on earnings. It wasn't hard to do with a tax cut, but uh, they're coming even stronger than I had anticipated. What about people, sort of the consensus call right now is that we're going to see a downturn within the next probably in 18, to t 18 months to two years. Do you disagree? For, for the economy? Yeah. I don't know what they know that, uh, you know, that I've been missing here. I mean, I follow all the same data that, that they do. I don't think, uh, I, I think, you know, there, there's suddenly I'm getting a lot of questions about is this uh, about to become the longest bull market, and if it is, it's because it's uh, discounting the fact that this will probably be the longest expansion next uh, next next July. And uh, I don't know that I don't see the excesses. You know, busts are caused by booms, and I don't see that uh, we got an inflationary boom problem right now. Well, there you have it. 
a note of optimism ahead of a soft or open this morning from uh, Dr. Ed Yardini. Thank you so much for being uh, with you this morning. Thank you. A lot of fun. Thanks very much. Dr. Ed Yardini is president of Yardini Research, and he is a longtime market analyst, very respected, uh, cutting his teeth at the Federal Reserve as well as Prudential Securities and Deutsche Bank and uh, Oak Associates. Right now, there is this divergence going on in the retail sector. You have winners, big winners, I'm thinking Walmart, and you have big losers that have been losers for a long time but are losing even more, the JCPenney's and Sears's of the world. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Dana Telsey, Chief Executive and Chief Research Office uh, Officer of Telsey Advisory Group. Dana, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with JCPenney. Uh, because a number of analysts are downgrading their estimates to mere pennies on the dollar for the shares of this company. Why is JCPenney still alive? And will this be the year that some of the laggards that have been uh, really kind of flagging in performance for years, will they finally have to face a reckoning? I think, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. I think overall, when you see lagging retailers, it takes a long time to kill a retailer. Whether it was Blockbuster, whether it's Radio Shack, or whether it's Sears, they don't go away overnight. With a retailer like JCPenney, certainly for this year, it seems like they continue to have over $2 billion in liquidity, $160 million coming due over the next two years. And even at their, their peak, they still have north of a billion and a half of liquidity. So it takes a long time. The search for a CEO is essential. Completion of that search is definitely essential. And let's see how their strategies evolve. It also, frankly, what's happening with these weaker retailers, you're seeing others gain share. I mean, look what you're seeing at Kohl's. Look what you've seen at Walmart. Look what you've seen at the off-pricers. Retailers can be cyclical. All right. So you're talking about how JCPenney could survive even though its shares dropped 27% yesterday and are down nearly 3% ahead of the open today. Um, I'm wondering, going forward, if you think that any of the sort of beaten up retailers are more attractive than they look to investors currently. I think one of the ones that's interesting, I think you have Gap out there, and keep in mind 46% of Gap's business is Old Navy, which has been strong. You have the Athleta business, which is growing. You have the Gap brand, which they're addressing the issues. We know what the, what the issues are. And typically when that stock hits near 30, it always is, is attractive, and it has that ability to move upward to 39. The other one that's been beaten up recently that we think is very attractive is Children's Place. They have, a dominant, they have a dominant place in the market. They're gaining share. They have done a very good job at inventory planning and allocation and sell through, whether it's online, whether it's in stores, whether it's through Amazon, their model is very compelling. I have to confess something that I shopped at Children's Place for my children. And the one nice thing is it's not super expensive and they have staples. And that sounds really obvious, but it's actually really hard to find. I'm looking right now at shares of uh, Children's Place at about $130 a share. Where do you see them going? 
I mean, I think there's no reason why Children's Place isn't going to move higher to at least 150, 160 and higher. I think the opportunity over time for them to be able to, to gain share is significant. And, and I mean, I think it's a $165 stock over the next two years or so. Interesting. What about L Brands, Victoria's Secret's parent company? They've been really beaten up this year. Uh, do you see upside there or is that a completely different story? I think they're working on the Victoria's Secret business to update and enhance the product offering, update and enhance the brand messaging. They have a significant share in the Intimates business. The Intimates category is very compelling. And the combination of Bath and Body Works and Victoria's Secret, frankly, allows them to continue to navigate. We do need to see consistency, stability, and an uptick in the Victoria's Secret brand. I think the management team is working very hard to make that happen. Yeah, Elbrands is down 45% so far uh, year to date. I am wondering, though, uh, you know, it wasn't so long ago, I believe maybe even just a year ago, that people were warning of the retail apocalypse that was coming to us to a theater near you, and it has yet to materialize. And now people are talking about the resurgence of even department stores. I mean, Macy's has seen an incredible run, even uh, with their recent decline after earnings. But I'm just wondering, you know, what did people get wrong? Why, why are retailers doing so much better than so many people had expected? I think there's two things that's happening. The strength of the consumer is compelling. And it's not just the consumer, and it's consumers of all ages, frankly, and all income levels in terms of what we've been seeing out there lately. Take a look at the unemployment rate, which has been so low. Look at disposable income, which has been growing. Disposable income wage increases, couple that with product innovation and newness that's out there that's driving demand. We haven't had an apparel cycle in a long time. And one of the things we're seeing out there, marry it with the government numbers. All of a sudden, you're seeing personal consumption expenditure trends. Second quarter, clothing and footwear spending grew by 4.1%. That's up from 2.7% in the first quarter. And even take a look at clothing and accessory stores. They're up in the second quarter around 7.3%, outpacing overall retail sales. There's product out there. It's in demand at compelling prices. And you're marrying that with ability to buy that in different channels both online and in physical stores, with inventory levels that are clean, so it's driving more full-price selling. We have a season that's coming up that should be exciting. Really, really interesting, especially given some of the pessimism that's been baked into the death of brick and mortar that just really has not happened uh, to the extent that so many people had expected. Dana Telsey, thank you so much for being with us. Dana Telsey is Chief Executive Officer and Chief Research Officer of Telsey Advisory Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.